The battle of Britain is about to begin. over the last few weeks. We've been talking about solo games that you sad pandas can play when you're sitting in your basement by yourself. We've been talking about other game systems. We've even been talking about Cold War ACM on our Facebook page. So we've been talking about a lot of different things. But across them all, we've seen a trend. And the trend is war gamers don't necessarily want new players. So I'm even going to use a quote from an anonymous grognard who said in one group when people were batting around, how do we attract new people to the hobby? He said, and I say he, cause it was a he and I emphasize over 60 years old and probably sitting in his own basement. I just want to play games with a select few friends. I invite over to my house. Well, congratulations as they all die off. You'll have fewer and fewer friends to play with. So invite new players to the game. Anyway, All of that morbidity aside, uh, I think something we want to talk about is how do we bring new players in? How do we we set aside some of our own personal uh, biases or mandates or things like that to involve kids? Because I think a lot of us started playing a variety of different games as kids, and there were people that either helped us play games or people said, go away, kid, you're bothering me. Come back when you can actually read the rules. Um, So let's talk about a little bit of of everyone's background. Board games. Let's just be super generic and talk about board games like Monopoly, Life, <laughs> Risk, things like that. Uh, Brett, when did you start playing uh, those kind of games? I can remember in elementary school, maybe as early as first or second grade, we'd have, if we had some free time, if we finished all our lessons, there was a collection of board games and stuff in the back of the classroom. And I can remember playing the game of life. And Operation and whatever other box games they had back there. I remember a game of life, though. The little spinner, I think. And, you know, and- it's funny. I, I actually, I know I played that game, but I don't remember it. It's like the first thing I remember is Monopoly and other derivatives of Monopoly and how miserable I was because I sucked at all of them. <laughs> right. I'm sure I played Monopoly. With, I think my grandparents had a Monopoly yeah. set and we we played, you know, as a family in the summers and stuff when I'd visit my grandparents, but not a whole lot of board yeah. gaming. Well, Steve, when were you, uh, how old were you when you first flipped your Monopoly board and said, I quit, this is the worst game ever? You know, you <laughs> laugh, but I'll tell you what, there were some massive, massive fights over Candyland <laughs> in my house with my sister, man. That's awesome. Uh, you know, lying about colors and oh, it was ugly. But, you know, the game of life, I will say, I just played that one a, a, maybe a week or two ago with my own family. Remarkably accurate simulation of a- actual life. If you get the wrong career you're and you've gone down the college path, you have so much debt, and no matter what you land on, you cannot get, get out, out of it. It's debt. insane it's how not, accurate it is. It's not going to get any better for you. Yeah, I just, I, I literally must have either blacked it out for a horrible memory or I must have been cheated in my childhood. I just, I 
can't remember playing life. Uh, but that's fine because I, I grew up on Monopoly and, and hiding banknotes under the edge of the board and, <laughs> you know, cheating, cheating horribly that way. Um, I, yeah, I think I was six or seven, I, I guess, when I really can remember playing, no kidding, playing board games and it not just being like sitting around watching family do stuff. Um, I know I played Risk. Uh, I'm trying to remember what some of the other derivative games were because they were kind of like Monopoly, but they were, you know, standard 1970s, 1980s knockoffs back before copyright infringement was a thing. Um, but yeah, I think for me that was a was a huge intro because I was socially comfortable to sit around with adults and play a competitive game. And I will come back to this talking about how children socialize today and how there may be some barriers there in that um, for me at an early age, I was used to losing to adults <laughs> or used to having to not gloat when you're the seven-year-old and you beat everyone else at Monopoly. Uh, but but there was a little bit of socialization there that I think carried me well into wargaming and into role-playing games, but that we can't assume everybody has. We can't assume that everybody's grown up playing Monopoly around the, the dinner table with their, their parents and their grandparents. So to kind of take a step from that for, for you other guys, you know, when did you start playing war games or things that were more serious than Monopoly? You know, what, uh, Brett, what was, uh, what was your first not Monopoly game? Hmm. Does Battleship count as a war game? Only if you're driving the Moscow around that. the Black Sea. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I don't remember any, any... Wait, wait, hold on. I have a toast. I have a toast games. to the Moskva. Sucking down two Neptunes like Jenna Jameson. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. No porn references aside. Uh, go ahead. <clears throat> we'll be serious here. Yeah, that's, that's the only one... That's the only game I could even think of as a potential war game. You know, I never played Risk what? or Stratego. Well, I, actually, I played Stratego like once. I, I, I couldn't understand it. I'm like, I don't get this game. This is weird. I... Yeah, I don't think I played. I don't. I, I probably didn't play Risk until I was like fifty years old. <laughs> it was actually pretty <laughs> fun. I got my deprived of a childhood. Did you? You didn't play yeah. like Axis and Allies or anything in college? Was when you know you always hung out no. with all the cool kids, didn't you? You were just drinking beer and having too much fun in Daytona Beach, weren't you? Yeah, shooting <laughs> stuff. And I see how it is. Um, Steve, what uh, what about you for for kind of a war game? Well, I'll tell you what, the very first war game I ever played, and it's going to be, you know, everybody's going to kind of gasp. I guess you could say it was like a homebrew colonial era war game. I uh, got some like toy soldiers at Gettysburg one time we went, and my dad and I had this white dry erase board, and we would just kind of draw mountains and stuff on it with a marker. And uh, we had a little penny we would flip that was like artillery. And if you knock the guys over, they were dead. But yeah, was, I guess, you know, Casey's going to be like, you know, put, waving his finger. I told you so. Civil War games are fun. He's going to get me back. Did you, but then, uh, did you, know, you fight did... the Battle of uh, Vicksburg, Virginia? Too soon. Yeah, we did. It was a good one. Yeah, it was a good one. Yep, Vicksburg, Virginia was a good one. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know, crossbows and catapults. You guys remember so, that so one where you had like the little things with the rubber bands never, and you shot the never stuff? Never played it. Saw on either Vintage RPG or maybe some other Vintage Toy Instagram. I saw it come back up and I'm like, I apparently was also cheated because I, I don't remember playing that. I remember 
I remember having things like that, or actually I never did. It was, you know, at one of my buddies' place. And I remember they had a big bonus room upstairs that he owned some games like that, but I just, I, I don't remember, you know, crossbows and catapults or any one of those specifically. Yeah, that was crazy. There yeah. were these little like plastic towers and stuff you built, and then you kind of like had some. I guess it was probably a rubber band or a spring loaded little thing that like a ballista See, and a that, that, cro- that's and what shot. you oh, uh, cool. all you rich people up in uh, you know rich states like Pennsylvania played. Us poor kids were out there. <laughs> oh, you know, no, no, no. We had green army men I and firecrackers. We just uh, we threw uh, green ar- green army men out there with firecrackers. <laughs> I say crossbows and catapults, <laughs> but I definitely had like I don't know some other weird version of it. It wasn't the real one. Oh. Yeah, so so it it, it is yeah. funny to see some of those. Brett, did anything like that even remotely ring a bell? What? Well, these not out of the box games. It's it was more like Steve was talking about like homebrew stuff. I can remember at a pretty young age, maybe around five five or six, my grandparents had this really fancy Civil War chess set, where it was the blue and the gray, you know, and really fancy figures. And so I would set them up on the living room floor by my why my grandmother watched Price is Right or something, and I would shoot them with this little pellet <laughs> pistol I had that shot little plastic pellets. And when they were all knocked down, I'd stand them back up. So there was a lot of that. And I can remember spending hours and hours outside. Um, there was a place uh, in the woods where there was this... Uh, a van down uh, by the river? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had the best candy. Uh, no, it was a spot where you know, like people used to dump trash and go shoot shotguns and stuff. So it was, anyway, it, so it was a fun place to run around in the woods and throw rocks and break bottles and stuff like that. But anyway, we'd collect shotgun shells and stick them up, stick them around in this spot where there were all these dirt clods and uh, this big like rock wall or whatever, and just throw d- dirt clods at the shotgun shells until they were all knocked down. Those are like the enemy soldiers, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And then. When they were all knocked down, stick them back up. And I'm talking like all day long out there doing that, as stupid well, as no, it sounds. I, that it, was probably as close to a, a It'll lead game. kind of into our next question about miniatures specifically. But I, I think even though I played a lot of war games as a you know young teenager, I, I think a lot of my war games were kind of like you're saying, Steve. It was... Me and a couple buddies, like, you know, drew a map and, you know, we said, well, you've got five tanks and I've got seven. And, you know, we, we, there were competitive things like that, but they weren't formalized rule systems. And that's something that I didn't really remember and didn't really concentrate on until this weekend when I realized that sometimes kids want really malleable rules. They don't necessarily want things that are set in stone in a hard, hard rule book because that's how we all played when we were kids. You know, we, we made up the rules. We went along. We thought of cool things to, to add, you know, that green shotgun shell, that's the general. We've got to kill that guy. Um, but for me, war games were a, uh, were an aftermath. I started playing role-playing games first. And so I started playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, in my parents' book and game store uh, I was probably eight years old, maybe maybe seven when I played my first game. But I think I was probably eight, uh, looking at least the, the the magazines and books that I have from that era. Um, and and so role playing games got me in, and it got me into kind of the social uh, piece of it. And I and I always tell the story that it's a little funny to me. My first role-playing game experience, which was terrible as a kid, I mean, I generate this character, I pour all this effort into this this human fighter that's going to go kill all these people, and he dies like in the first room charging a giant or something, so <laughs> I learned pretty quickly, I'm like, huh, I guess I can't get too attached to any of these little plastic characters out there, <laughs> but... 
from there, then I got into war games. Now, obviously, I had an unfair advantage. You know, parents ran a, a book and game store. So there were store copies of the Avalon Hill games out there. I had a chance to learn them. People were playing them in store. So there was, obviously, there were people I could walk up to and go, oh, that's kind of a cool game. What's it about? Go away, kid. You're bothering me. Leave me alone. Uh, no, they, they they were never that way, which which was good. But it got me into some of the intro-level war games, like Tactics 2, like War at Sea, Victory in the Pacific, uh, one of the ones, Africa Corps. You know, some of those, quote, old-timey classics that, that Grognars will refer to. But it, it got me into the competitive, the social, and the rules mechanics kind of aspects of the game. But I want to follow that on with the, the world we kind of live in today, miniature wargaming. When did you guys start playing miniature-based wargames? When did you go from you know just pushing figures around on a risk board or something else to at actually being about the figures and about painting the figures and, and not just having a gray army uh, that was running around? Brett? Well, I started painting figures probably around right, right around age 10, but I wasn't playing a game. I was just, you know, in the toy stores and the hobby shops. I like building plastic models. And I can recall that near the checkout counter, there would be usually a glass case that had the pewter figures or the white metal figures, of D, you know, D&D fantasy oh, yeah. stuff or whatever. And uh, I always thought those models were super cool and, and they weren't super expensive. So Everyone, you know, frequently I would get one, right? If we were ever out at the mall or out and about, and I had a few bucks in my pocket, I, I was pretty sure to come oh, man, home with one of those. That's still and, one of my my favorite nostalgic memories is from, and I wish I could remember which mall it was in Nashville, but just the the walking into the hobby store, and it was one of those you know seventies eighties hobby stores that had everything from World War II models to D and D stuff, and there's just that glassed in case of painted D&D figures. Yep. Uh, and of course, mine never looked that good. <laughs> but you're just like, I just want to buy that one fighter. Being I want pretty... to buy that wizard, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have a great recollection of all the models except for one. It was a, a Jabberwocky. <laughs> Whatever that, that or... So it, it's just re- really interesting yeah. dragon-looking thing. And uh, and I was really pretty, pretty pleased with the... Uh, the way it turned out after I painted it, you know, I was probably painting it with like testers model uh, paints. Let's know? not joke about and that. It, I literally was. And I found those miniatures the other day, pulling them out of storage, my old Dungeons and Dragons wizard painted with bright, glossy blue testers for his cloak. <laughs> right. But so that, that's kind of like, that's as close as I got to miniature games as a kid. Uh, but fast forward, you know, decades later, I think I was 40 when I uh, discovered 40K, a friend of mine uh, met me at the um, local uh, games workshop store and uh, introduced me to the whole world of that after I'd read read a few books. Like, I didn't know it was based on right. a game. And we were talking about the, the Horace Heresy books. He's like, you know, it's all based on a game, right? So I went in the store, and I was that kid again with the Jabberwocky <laughs> Look model, at all right? these cool models in the display case. Yeah, yeah. So that's how it all started yeah. for me, right? Steve? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first miniatures game I ever played, I can tell you straight away, Christmas Day 1995 was the old Super Bowl version of electric football. Exactly. You, you've was, got this whole alternate yeah, lifestyle where, where you've do. gone down this, this, this miniatures gaming thing, but it's electric that, football. <laughs> no, that was, tr- truthfully, that Which was I the had first time that I was kind of like, like, uh, 
you know, it was like, it wasn't just a toy. There was actually like a hobby aspect to it as well. Yeah. Right. Like the painting and the customizing. And so that was like the first real miniatures game that I ever played where it was more than just, uh, more than just like a game piece. And there was that hobby aspect see, to it as well. See, you hit it at the hobby age or phase when I had it, I literally remember it was yellow, uh, figures and blue figures and you put whatever decal you oh, yeah. wanted on the on the yeah, on the yeah. helmet there was that was about the level of hobby to it you know well the internet changed Dude, everything I, man yeah. i mean you know you found out there were a whole bunch of other losers out there sitting <laughs> around this metal board thing. that vibrated and then you know just snowballed from there like this is a great idea but i think i was in sixth grade and i found one of those in the trash and uh, you know you know in the neighborhood right just at somebody's at the end of somebody's driveway and i brought it home and goofed around with it for, you know, a couple of days. And, you know, I couldn't really get it to do it. You know, it was the novelty quickly wore off, right? Because the things just kind of buzzed around randomly. But I was always one that, like, I always, like, disassembled all my toys and stuff. And uh, anyway, I probably a couple of days after having a thing, I started taking it apart and plugged it in. And it, it caught on fire. I did <laughs> Why does this not surprise me? Set the thing on fire. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's kind of as close as well. Honestly, that's how that went. if you found it in the trash, somebody really messed up because it's. I mean, you could have at least recycled it. And got four or five bucks back in the day when you could like take the metal with your cans, right? I mean, exactly. don't throw it out. At least oh. recycle that for a couple bucks, right? Yeah, but I, yeah, that was my first war game. I guess would have been. Man, you know, I always thought like kind of the same deal. I'd go to the hobby shop and there'd be the guys, you know, playing forty k, and I was kind of like just walked around and thought the stuff looked cool and you know, picked up a couple figures just cause they were cool to paint, but never really played it. And then eventually got into X wing and you know, the aerial aerial games. Yeah. Yeah. That's my experience was kind of weird. Cause the shop that was closest to my grandparents in Huntsville was purely a model shop. There was nothing role-playing game, nothing fantasy. They were hardcore historical models there and trains. Uh, those are the two things you had there. So when I would go visit my grandparents, it was kind of like a uh, a desert of gaming. There was nothing game-related in any of the modeling or the miniatures. Yet when I went back home, and obviously we had the store, or we'd go to Nashville, or probably the worst thing for a kid who wants to be a kid in a candy store, when my parents would take me to like the game distributors in Knoxville, and you walk into the warehouse, you're like, oh my God, there's all these games. Um, you know, it's it was... It was interesting for me to to start getting involved in the miniature side, but I didn't really play true miniature games until I went to college and was still doing role-playing games, war games, computer games, whatever. And a buddy of mine was like, hey man, there's this cool game called 40K, Rogue Trader. You know, it's got these little hunched over space marines and look at this big ugly tank with treads that they've got. Um, and so my buddy introduced me to to Warhammer 40k and the miniature bug bit me then and I just started acquiring started buying miniatures but even then miniature gaming wasn't like my whole thing like you said Steve I'd, I'd buy and I'd paint stuff but most of the games I played were still role-playing games or conventional hex encounter board games uh, until I then got in flight school got too busy actually doing a real job and didn't have time to keep playing those things so it was when I came back to wargaming uh, in you know 2012 timeframe, it was right back into the miniatures piece. So kind of since then, I've had to go back and remember, oh, yeah, there's all these other war games that have these little pieces of cardboard. Um, but it was but I got drawn really back into the miniature side. So 
it's it's been funny to go grab all my old stuff and and like I said, you know, see stuff painted with testers colors or things painted in the era before washes when when everything was just like you would paint whatever flat colors belonged on the model in the 1980s and yeah just even though there's detail there you just can't see it so i probably need to go back and strip some of those models and give them the <laughs> give them the treatment they deserve even though my painting skills have not really improved any since those days so that's all right um, okay so let's talk a little bit about those those important things about drawing kids into playing war games, because I think understanding our progression gives us a little bit of insight into what meant a lot to us and, you know, what what kind of things kids may or may not have as experiences today. You know, I think while a lot of war gamers malign collectible card games and and that whole genre of, of gaming, you at least get interaction. You at least get people around the table, and depending on the game, it could be two, could be four players. You you get people understanding the dynamics of sportsmanship, you know, winning graciously and losing without crying. Uh, but but I think that those are things you can never assume because number one, there there are so many people that don't play collectible card games yet have an interest in historical things or science fiction things, as well as. There's just a lot of people who their entire gaming knowledge and, and world these days is online, and that breeds a very different social dynamic. Um, Steve, you're kind of our resident online shooter, airplane game player. You know <laughs> what? What are your thoughts on how that impacts specifically kids that are then all of a sudden across a table from an opponent expected to play sportsmanship wise? Dude. This is like a rabbit hole for me to go down. If you want to start talking about kids and the way they interact, man. I don't know yeah, you well, you're the one brainwashing that. all of our children, right? You know, you're, I am, you're indoctrinating I'm, I'm them. Responsible for the liberal indoctrination of the youth of America and the entire Northeast of the United States. That's why they always get you coffee and do everything you say. Oh, wait, no, they don't, they don't do that either. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is, right? I think uh, kids just interact differently now than we did before, right? It's easy to interact with somebody online because there's no real... Uh, I don't know. I, I say it like a bad thing, but there's no real accountability for anything, right? right? There's no right. accountability for the way you behave, the way you conduct yourself, you know, and if they don't like you, you just log off, never talk to them again, never see Change them again. Change your screen and name and yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's just different. You know, when you were at recess and, uh, you know, you ripped a kid's magic card in half or you stole a kid's pog, you know, that was like, you had to answer to that the next day, right? Yeah. I mean... I don't know because we didn't have those things when I was a kid, but okay, whatever, young and. <laughs> but no, it's it's a it's a valid point that that kids today do grow up in a different level of accountability for just gaming than we did. You know, for those of us that that were playing Battleship with our friends or were playing games at school in kind of an organized fashion, it's very much a a different world today, and I think that at least for me as someone who's demoing games or hosting games or things like that is I kind of have to take a step back and realize one of the first things that I'm going to have to deal with is that kids may not know how they're supposed to interact around the table. And they just may not, you, just, you, you don't have to be a jerk about it, but sometimes you got to set the ground rules. And it'll be a, a theme that I'll say a couple times through here is you, you kind of got to know your boundaries. You got to know what you're good at. If you're not good with kids, <laughs> then I recommend you don't try to teach them how to play war games. Uh, but you, you kind of have to have an ability to say, okay, I need to explain how everyone's going to interact around the table because a lot of games are different. Some games 
are cooperative. Some games are directly competitive. Some are Euro indirect competitive games. So when kids get frustrated or when kids want to act as in what maybe we would think of as an unsportsmanlike uh, way, we also got to realize maybe that's what they're used to in a highly competitive environment is being confrontational, being in your face, you know, confronting people and, uh, and dragging their face through the mud whenever they lose. So did you get like, hurt by some kids this weekend no, it was, it was like, awesome did, is this, so are you scorned it was, or it what was happened funny here? so it was it was good so <laughs> let me let me tell the background story to it so uh probably played six or eight games total with adults this weekend and then i don't know how many times i got beat by this kid uh but then again we weren't playing blood red skies in, in my defense uh but he was one of the vendors kids and so he had a lot of free time so whenever he was done roaming the vendor hall playing the video games next door whatever he'd come over and want to play blood red skies and i put that in big air air quotes because rules were an evolving thing for him and you know he's about nine years old i'd i'd guess was obviously knowledgeable about airplanes about history but also was a child of that of his generation you know he he wants video game type things in in a board game he's like well can I fly over there and that upgrade my pilot skill? <laughs> you know, what if, you know, and, and he asked a lot of questions that are very video game oriented. And you're like, no, this is a historical game, young man, you're pilot skill three and you shall be pilot skill three for the whole game. But it gave me a little bit of insight into the things that, that he cared about or things that would, would drive historical grognards nuts. Like when he's like, well, why can't an American pilot use Ram attack? <laughs> What if I want to ram my wildcat into the zeros? Uh, so th- things like that uh, kind of broadened my perspective to realize the other six or eight games I did with the adults played by my rules. But yet when I was playing with kids, that it changed. You know, If I enforced the rules the whole time, A, he would have had no fun, and B, he probably would have walked away and said, I don't want to play Blood of the Skies. That game sucks. That guy's a jerk. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of the impetus of it, where it at least caused me to step back because, um, a number of kids were in a variety of different games, either role-playing games, board games, uh, some of the demo games that were going on there. And it was interesting to watch each of the game masters or hosts and how they interacted with the kids, because I found it very interesting. The, I think the most, uh, or the reactions I expected the most were out of the role-playing game GMs. I understood where they were coming from. They were very gracious in everything they said. They were always a little bit deferential to the younger kids that were playing with older adults. They would kind of lead things along, go, are you sure you really want to do that? <laughs> do you really want to charge in and stab the, the giant with that sword? Uh, but they were, they were really catering to the entire audience while making sure the kids had fun. And then I said at one game where it was obvious that the guy who was running it was all about the rules. Um, And he did a great job teaching the adults that were playing the game, but all the kids that were playing the game lost interest because he was so about the rules of his game as he's written it. Um, Instead of, you know, as we'll talk about some techniques for getting the kids involved and the kids enjoying the game, but maybe the kids not having to grasp four pages of rules and precise interactions that, you know, let me be honest, uh, even those of us that are over the age of 30 at some points were scratching our heads. <laughs> Where do I put the chit? I don't know. I just want to put this chit on my character somewhere. Um, but so, so let's, let's move directly into talking about that, into, into play versus rules. Because I think a lot of us have forgotten that when we're kids, 
we played and we didn't necessarily care about rules. Maybe we made up rules. Maybe we said, hey, well, if my little army men make it to your side of the creek over there, then that's going to give me a tank, you know, and, and, and maybe we had some of that. But I think there's there's a point when you're teaching kids to play games and teaching kids to enjoy games you've got to see what they want to get in the play value out of it. Brett, I know you've probably seen this with Gavin a couple times, that it's one thing to have really cool miniatures, and it's another thing for him to go, oh, I really want to play, you know, Game of Thrones miniatures game. <laughs> Those are two different things. Yeah. He's had so many games of his own on the floor with hundreds of miniatures spread out on the floor, and I hear him making all kinds of, you know, battle noises and stuff, and I'll peek in and see, and he's you know, having the greatest time. But when I try to convince him, hey, let's sit down at a table and play some kind of one of these games in some way, he's been real reluctant. And I I fault myself because I think a few years ago, in an effort to try to maybe bring some kind of game to the like a weekly thing, like maybe Wednesday night game night with a family, you know, I, I actually, you know, I did a few things right. I did some research to find out, you know, what's a good game for people who don't, for a family that doesn't really play games. And I found game, a game that got really good reviews and had really cool miniatures. And it was like this cooperative game. So everybody could do something. And I got the box. I painted up the miniatures as best I could. So they looked super cool and everybody was enthusiastic to play, but the big mistake I made and it kind of ruined everything really was that I didn't really know how to play the game. So I was playing it with them, right? Like, we yeah, all open yeah. the box and you're together. All and, the rules together. <laughs> yeah, but we spent so much time reading the rules and stuff that everybody lost interest. And you know, I was trying hard to follow the right. rules because I thought if I didn't follow the rules, you know, we wouldn't know how the game worked and we wouldn't have fun. It really just made it where it was cumbersome and boring. And we have never ever broken that game out again. Now, if <laughs> you're I scarred just as a father time, now, aren't you? You're like I have oh, failed man. my child. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of reluctance, you know, from Sean and from Gavin to like, hey, I got this great game. Why don't we play it? Uh, I did get a game in with Gavin that we just kind of made up with some 40K yeah. figures. And he and I had a lot of fun doing it. But it's a lot like you're talking about. We just kind of like made up some really rudimentary rules and it was going to be fun. And, you know, we weren't going to have to think too hard. And Gavin like actually made some little strategies and stuff. It kind of surprised me or whatever, but that worked really well. If if you are gonna bust out a game like I tried to do, please if if you've not done it before, watch some videos <laughs> on how the game plays. Read the rules way before anybody sits down at the table, so that at least if you're gonna like kind of help proctor the game or whatever, that you can make it fun and you don't have to keep referring to the rules and stuff. And you be prepared to like yeah. just adjust and you know make sure it's you know make sure the Wookiee wins kind of thing. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, if that was my theme, then the Wookiee beat the shit out of me all weekend. But, you know, to to that point, for all the Blood Red Skies players out there, one of the first things that went out the window was the boom chit breaking the squadron mechanic. It was like, there's there's no point. I want to see, just let him accumulate boom chits and let you know him keep having fun. Uh, we're not going to end the game when there's one more boom chits than airplanes I have on the table. Let's just keep playing until Doug's eyes finally glaze over and I go, okay, I got to go eat dinner. <laughs> but it, but to that point is it kept him interested and it allowed us to talk about some of the rules of the game. And as we went through the weekend and, and he kept showing back up, I'm like, damn it, I didn't scare him away last time. Um, we started playing with more of the rules. So by the end, we were talking about advantage. We were talking about maneuvering. Sure, were we 
you know, turning 45 degrees every turn. No, not at all. You know, totally breaking some of those rules. But it was building up an introduction to get him through the game uh, to to where after a handful of these games, he was not just moving in a straight line and doing whatever he wanted to do. He was actually somewhat following the rules that resemble Blood Red Skies. So, Steve, your experiences trying to teach things now that Brett's, you know, aired it all, his being a horrible dad, dirty laundry in front of us. Man, you know, we've actually kind of uh, progressed from like the kid style board games to some of the more, I don't know, there's board games out there that are, I would say kind of like a cross between like a miniatures game and almost kind of like a board game on steroids, right? Uh, so like the board games that have a little bit of a strategy aspect to them. And generally... If it is on a board and it's on the constructs of like moving around spaces of a board, my family will just jump in and start playing and they really like them. Uh, as so soon they're going to start an aeronautica squadron next week. <laughs> to, you know, no joke that that could potentially happen. As soon as you jump outside of that into like the abstract world of blood, red skies, yeah. uh, we played a couple scenario zeros but it's just a lot harder for them to kind of grasp. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Blood Red Skies is great for it. I mean, my girls, uh, you know, Blazes 8, Arrow 6, they'll play Scenario 0 and chase, you know, chase a plane around the board and get the basics of moving and stuff. I think the biggest thing, like you guys are saying, this is a different mindset, right? If you're playing with kids, you have to have a different mindset than if you're actually going to play you know, in a tournament game. Yeah. That, that's the most important. You're going to laugh. My expectation was have a kid sit still for more than five minutes and not look at their phone. So, <laughs> and yeah, that was a victory. Uh, and, and I think like you said, you know, letting them get to their level of interest, because I even look around at a lot of the games that I have that I played as a kid versus played later in life. And then, then, uh, you know, even play today, I know there's some I've never taken past the introductory scenarios because that's all that I really could grasp at the time when I was, you know, 10 years old or whatever. And then there's games like Squad Leader that I bought early or got a store copy. I don't know. I, I just remember I had it for years, didn't understand it. Somewhere in the teenage years, the rules kind of clicked. Uh, but even then, I didn't really play a lot of the complex scenarios. And now I go back and look at it at my age. And I'm like, oh, these scenarios are straightforward. This is easy. Why didn't I play some of these? Why, why did I think this was so difficult? But that's, you know, decades of, of gaming experience later. So I think there's something to be said for, for tailoring the game, simplifying it, concentrating on having fun, uh, and realizing that who cares if you're playing Blood Red Skies? Who cares if you're playing Flames of War? If you are hanging out with other like-minded people that want to have fun, um, introducing new people to the hobby, getting people to talk about painting airplanes. And, and that was even one of the, the realizations that a couple of the younger players that came over, they're like, oh, wait, this isn't like X-Wing? You mean you can paint your own stuff however you want? You know? And so there, there was, uh, there, there's an interesting you know, undercurrent there uh, that a lot of the gamers, uh, a lot of the younger gamers that, that I got a chance to play with there um, have, have said that shows it's kind of different than what they're used to. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you get them into a complex game and, and not necessarily blood red skies. Cause I think the three of us agree you can simplify BRS. You can take pieces out of it. You can concentrate on just moving, uh, shooting without advantage, which is what we did. And that's why I totally got gunned, uh, or mixing, uh, F 86s and F four, F Wildcats in the same squadron. 
all those rules that will cause Andy to lose his mind that we did. Um, but how do you get younger kids to play more complex games or to at least be interested in, in learning about them? Um, you know, I use the example of partnering up because that's how I played a lot of games as a kid. I, the Grognards didn't let necessarily let me play totally on my own. They didn't let me uh, just jump in there and totally derail the game by asking a million dumb questions uh, that seemed really insightful to me at 10 years old, but apparently now in hindsight were really dumb questions. Um, but they would partner me with an adult, and most of the time the adults were really good about it being a collaboration between us two, where you know they'd ask me, what do you want to do? Where do you want to attack? But I think... Part of that with war games is your opponents also have to be really uh, not in a super competitive smash face kind of kind of mindset that they're going to sit there and let you all discuss openly what you're going to do, you know, and and not use that discussion or that knowledge, uh, you know, against the players. Um, have you guys ever seen anyone do that kind of that that mentorship or partner up kind of war gaming uh, with kids? You know, I saw some good examples of that when we did that demo game at Adepticon, the one really great demo game. I think it was kind of like that. I mean, we didn't know the game, so we were just like kids, you know, if you will, right? Pretty much were. We had plenty of questions, and I got distracted easily, and I wanted to eat pizza. (laughs) Yeah, but the guys that were like, you know, the DM, if you will, they were super enthusiastic, and they stacked the deck ahead of time. You know, I think there was, you know, it was a, you know, they preset the first tile of, the first tiles of the game in a way that I'm sure it was, I don't know, rehearsed in a way, like thought through anyway, where they knew, okay, if we put things like this, it'll be sort of a, it won't be overwhelming right. and it'll, some fun things will happen. And probably if there was like cards to draw from that made things happen, they made sure those cards were fun cards and not like, you know, a buzzkill card right out of the yeah, gate. Well, you and know? that was, so, uh, that, that, yeah, that was one of the good things that uh, one of the dungeon crawl games that we played there uh, that the guy did is he totally sculpted the decks you were given. And so he made sure that you at least had an equitable start between everyone. You were a couple buildings in for building your village, a couple heroes in for putting together a team, all those kind of things. Uh, the only you know debrief point that that we all had afterwards was, hey, and if you got a kid there, <laughs> give him an adult mentor, or you know make sure uh, make sure you don't give him the complex cards that it's going to cause him to have to sit there and think about the rules, but. Yeah, it's it's one of those one of those things where, as John always says, let the Wookiee win. But it's it's about getting someone to experience the game. Not necessarily that you have to throw the game just because you're the organizer. But if you go in there and smash them in the face, uh, it is it is generally not a learning experience for them. Now, well, if, even if the game isn't a cooperative dungeon crawl game, like you know I was describing. You could kind of make it a cooperative game, even if you oh, have yeah. opponents on the other side of the table, where it's like a team thing, like you were saying, like partnering up. So you know you're making the decisions together and bouncing things off each other. That's yeah, a good and idea. We did that even amongst adult players with Blood Red Skies, where there was a point where I said, "I'll just fly one side, you guys all fly the other," and that way uh, it gave me a chance to let them talk together, think together, work together while I I flew the uh, the Wildcats and they flew the Zeros. So. It isn't just necessarily for kids. You can do it with a lot of different uh, levels of players. Um, you know, encouraging your kids to paint the models and factions they like. I, I laugh because this is where I go, come on, Brett, you're such a terrible father. You should have known this. I, I think I think that's a, a huge thing for a lot of the games that 
we end up buying is we want to paint the figures. We want to, we want to curate this experience. And I think kids have a little bit more vested interest if they have built the model, played, painted the model, played with the model. Cause here's the funniest part. So the aircraft that one of the younger players enjoyed the most was not any one of the painted aircraft that I put out there. They literally went over, grabbed a P-51 that was still primered in the box, stuck decals on it, and then that became their hero airplane, <laughs> their ace. <laughs> and I'm like, don't you really want those nicely painted F-86s over there? But that, because they had made it theirs in that sense by putting the decals on it, um, that was their star airplane. So it it suddenly just flipped the switch for me that if you're not involving them in the crafting of the miniatures, they may not be as invested because they're just going to look at it like any other any other toy that someone's randomly thrown in front of them. Yet when they've painted it or they've put it together, there's a there's a real vested interest there. Yeah, I would I would Gavin. definitely agree with that. And even at Adepticon, uh, there were at the. Uh... Man, I want to say, is it Reaper Miniatures maybe? Always has a table there with figures yep. and paints. There oh, were yeah. tons of kids just sitting down painting miniatures and, you know. How many of those kids just... were playing Meat Grinder later? That's what I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> at least two of them. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, it is true. Uh, you know, just get them involved somehow, right? And kind of accept that they might not get involved the same way as you do, but the fact that they're involved at all is at least kind of opening that yeah, door. Well, it's to kind get, of a win in that sense. You know, and it's, it's like a lot of things where we always tend to, as adults, put our expectations for performance on kids as if they were adults and we forget they're just kids. Uh, there's, there was a moment there where I, this weekend, I finally understood how my dad must have felt watching me as a kid play with his really nice metal toy soldiers from the 1940s. As I was watching kids play with really nicely painted models from Trevor. (laughs) And I was like, well, if I have to have Trevor paint me another set of uh, TBMs, that's fine. Might need some more hurricanes after this is all over. A couple more ram attacks from the the U.S. and I won't have any models left. Uh, But there there was a point where I also had to kind of check my um, my arrogance my grognard ism whatever it was and go they're just resin fighters they're just plastic fighters who cares you know if if kids are not handling them as gingerly as we would um that's they're they're viewing them as toys so when they set them down the table and they don't nicely place them down and aircraft go flying get over it what other kind of things have you guys seen we're talking a little well you were talking about that aesthetic thing and like you know letting the letting a new gamer you know, kind of pick their faction based on what oh, yeah. they're into or whatever. Uh, I think that's that's the root of how I had probably the finally had kind of a, a successful proto game, if you will, with Gavin was uh, he's really into anything that's like really disgusting or really alien <laughs> or demonic, right? I'm sure Sean so loves that. These, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, you know, most of my collection is all like the real clean space Marines, right? <clears throat> Roman Legion in space kind of stuff. And he, he likes like zombies and yep. like the, 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 the monsters that have like guts <laughs> spilling out and stuff. Right. Thankfully I have some of those and they're painted up and he's kind of into them and he plays with them occasionally. And so I talked him up about it. It's like, yeah, you know, those, those pox walkers you like the zombie like things, uh, you know, kind of telling a little story and suggesting to him that there's a way we could play where he could, like have this zombie horde and see how, see how long it would take for them to overtake a couple of, you know, snipers on top of a, 
you know, some kind of, you know, trapped in some yeah, building. Yeah. And so we just kind of made a game where he like steadily marched the guys towards, towards them. And anytime he lost one of those guys, all it did was back the ones that got lost to the back of the table, but the rest of the horde continued to come. Right. <laughs> nice. And he actually had a good time. It took us about maybe 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes of gameplay. And it was real simple because we played on kind of like a little hex mat from a, it was like a blasted desert mat from like uh, dust or something. I think it's a, like, a, it's got a grid yeah, on it yeah. or something. So it was really easy to tell like what six inches was or whatever. So he was able to move and, Anyway, it's real simple dice rolls. He was either, you know, hit and wound, or I think in his case, he could dodge some wounds, and if he rolled a six and his guy didn't get killed or whatever, so they would just keep coming. And uh, anyway, he had a, he had a blast. It was only like a 20, 20 or 30-minute game tops, but we both had a good time, and I was, you know, I'm, we need, I'm surprised we haven't done more of those, but it was our like our first successful game, and a, and a total... 180 from the complete failure I had with like <laughs> what I thought was a well thought out, you know, approach to getting a family yeah, game in. Not so much. Steve. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would, I would agree with, with all of the above, you know, that, uh, I mean, it is funny that they just, what you think is the coolest thing they're going to go, you know, totally kid brain and yep. go the opposite way. And zombies and disgusting stuff are always cool to kids and death and destruction. Death and destruction. And, yeah, exactly. You just got to go for he it. He kept, kept trying to figure out how we could have the uh, the kamikaze TBM bombers that would uh, that would crash into all of my Japanese carriers. And hey, I'm man, like, no, gathering exact, of eagles. Yeah, exactly. Death race. Death race, blood red skies. It's coming. I we were agree. talking about it at happy hour Friday. Think, it's it's gonna be oh, a winner. Oh, nice. We gotta we gotta plot that out and figure out how we're gonna do that. Because I agree. I think I think we need to have uh, a game that is less BRS, more fun, and a lot of alcohol involved. And I think that that's what we should do for for Friday evening uh, prior to. I'm gonna have to. So- I think I need to have some Ferrari Red Do three three five for that. Yes, you do because in fact, be perfect. those are the kind of uh, kind of airplanes that a historical grognard would just like burst into flame seeing. So, <laughs> oh man, now we're really now you're really making me like it. I think I'm going to make like a twin boom Corsair, like the yeah, you know, like the twin Mustang, the yep. twin Corsair. Twin See Corsair. if we can cobble one of those guys exactly. together for it. That could be great. Uh, I have plenty of misprints of your Corsair designs. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> Uh, well, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, I'll call it the seven hundred pound gorilla because the the comment that grognards always make is well kids these days they just don't have any attention span you know they're always on their phones they're they're playing them video games uh, but the fact is none of us had a great attention span as a kid <laughs> I know I certainly didn't um, yes there's a lot more demands on kids time yes they're a lot more connected a lot more device oriented but. What are the techniques you guys uh, can think of and that you've kind of you know experimented with and, and done to hold kids' attention span when you're trying to play a game like that, especially miniatures based? You mean besides take their phone and throw it away? Yeah, like yeah besides strategy? that oh. one, that 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 one doesn't <laughs> count. Taking taking their phone and putting it in the fire safe does not count as a strategy. No, I think you know just just having a good expectation when you get started, right. That this is going to be different. Uh, and just having the patience with them. Uh, if you make it fun, kids will want to do it. Right. Yeah, if you yeah. make it like a chore and you bog them down with the rules 
And like you said, we've all been there as adults where we're like, man, there's a lot of rules in this game and it's just not fun. And yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll fess up and be guilty. There were a couple times that I, uh, you know, fell back looking at some of those hex based games where I was like scrolling on my phone doing that too. So, you know, it's not just kids are yep. kids. Aren't the only ones guilty that if you make it fun, uh, I, I don't think you'll have an issue. Right. But, but that has the fun first has to be, has yeah, to be the priority. One of the great uh, quotes from one of the kids when playing the dungeon crawl game and they were handed, you know, four pages of rules was they were like, do I have to read all of this? <laughs> And then all of us started laughing. And in fact, like the 70 year old guy next to him was like, no, I'd actually prefer to have it all explained to me too. I don't want to read all this. <laughs> so understanding that, that everyone's awesome. going to have different attention spans. And there's a lot of times, especially for demo games and I've, and I've seen it happen poorly. I'll, I'll talk about an example of people doing it. Well, uh, is Mark for aerodrome as he introduces things incrementally. Um, man, when people try to teach you the whole game straight out of the rule book at the beginning, uh, my eyes glaze over. I don't have that kind of attention span. Um, most of the times I'm drawn into a game because the miniatures look cool or the storyline is something interesting or maybe just the game design. I look down I'm like, ooh, that's kind of a cool layout. What's that? Um, and and I find some people just, they want to, uh, I don't know whether it's grognard splaining or what, they want to grognard splain their game. <laughs> and you're like, man, just let me play. I don't care if I screw up. I just want to play. Uh, so yeah, there's there's definitely an element to that. Brett, what were some of your techniques? I know you had a, a couple things about miniatures and, and things like that that we've we kind of hinted on. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Mark because he's a great example. Because just like just like any other, we were new players, right, when we played Aerodrome, and uh, he made it fun because he was prepared to be a cheerleader yeah. the whole time. And of course, he knew the game really well, so he wasn't like referring to a rule book or something like. So that's probably the first thing. It's just like you know, make sure you know the game <laughs> so you can. Roll it out good for your. Or just make it up like I do. No, no, man, that's that's like a two dice roll. You got to get a five on those. I think. Yeah. Well, and and and, you know the kids. I don't. I don't know. It's they lack attention. I think it's just they have so many things they can go to. If this thing sucks, man, it's like twenty other things. They could be playing DCS, flying SU twenty sevens, and crashing them. So that's right. Yeah. No, I and I think there's there's a a point to that that when you're playing some of these games, you are literally competing with a bunch of other things they could be doing. And so if they're having fun, if they're enjoying it, if they like the, the tactile feel of moving little airplanes around and the, the ability to, to have uh, map boards and all kinds of cool stuff out there, then I think they get attracted to it. And like I said, if you, if you just totally bog them down and bore them with the rules, then they're just going to go do something else. They're, they're going to you know, do something where they don't need to know the rules because there's a tutorial to walk them through or they can go watch their favorite YouTube channel, give them the, the level walkthrough and figure out how to, how to ace the game. So we didn't talk much about it. We talked briefly earlier about stacking the deck. So techniques for stacking the deck without making it obvious. <laughs> I know Steve's shaking his head. What's up? What? That's tough, isn't it? No, I, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. I'm a big proponent of like, you know, making them lose. Yeah, like, I gotta tell you, <laughs> you know, I make them cry early. <laughs> I feel like I have tons of pictures of family game night in the Toth house of uh, kids crying. You could use for the cover shots of this episode. <laughs> that's, that's what I, I mean. Is it really family you, game night if a kid doesn't leave crying? You, I mean, you and you and my dungeon master must have been paired up well. Make the kid cry early. Killed my fighter. Oh man. Well, you know, I think I think for me, there's an interesting 
there's a crossover point somewhere, and I don't know how many turns it is. I don't know if it's a time thing or what it is with Blood Red Skies specifically. But we've all been in that game where it's nothing but a total Luffberry as everyone's trying to fly around. Nobody can tail anyone. No one can shoot anyone. And you're like, I just have to end this game because I either have to eat dinner, go home, go get a beer, do do something else. And as as the host, I hate to do it, but I'm like, I'm just going to shoot a hostage right now. <laughs> I am just going to kill one of their fighters because I can, and it will make the game end that much faster because I can't take the pain anymore. Um, and that's probably a bad thing to do, but I also think that sometimes for demo games, maybe with kids, maybe not with kids, depends how much they're enjoying it, but I know definitely with adults, sometimes you just got to finish the game. You know, Sometimes letting them win isn't as important as just, okay, we're going to take this to a logical conclusion, and the conclusion is, you freaking lost. <laughs> You know what? Actually, even more than stacking the deck, right? I would say like the redo is like a great tool when you're playing with kids, right? Like, oh, you did that. Would, it would didn't that be work. like a do take you back? Do that or are there again? no take backs? Yeah, little take backs. There's, okay, there's little take backs. Some take backs. Yeah, some. Ta- that's actually my, I'm actually some take back Steve. That's what people call me when we play. Oh, okay. But, uh, so so I'm side slip Doug. <laughs> you're some take back Steve. Brett, what, what are we gonna call Brett? We gotta have a name for him. But, uh, uh, you know, I think when uh, with kids, that's like a great strategy, right? Like, oh, that didn't really work out. Do you want to redo that? Or what if you did this other thing instead? You know, I think the redo is a is a is a good, good strategy. To use. Yeah. Yeah. Because once again, it's a game. I was thinking about some of the games we play here that we continue to play regularly. We always have fun doing it. You know, usually like when we're on vacation, we'll play um, Exploding Kittens, right? And so obviously not a board game, right? But, but a I was fun like, game. What, what makes that <laughs> that yeah, unstable what, what makes that fun? Yeah, what makes it a game that we all want to play and it, it, it look forward to playing? Like when we're on vacation stuff, we might play two or three rounds of that, you know, every night. It's crazy, right. and it's because right away we get into like interesting interactions with the other players and a lot of smack talking, and you're like taking stuff from your other players and do you know? So if you can make so in in the context of say Blood Red Skies, if there's a way to sort of you know, stack the deck, I guess, to create the scenario, you know, situations where that kind of dust up kind of stuff is going to happen frequently and early. It's just going to make it more fun, you know, whereas a lot of times, you know, we might, we've all had those games where you're like, it's a cagey game and, you know, it's hard to make things happen because everybody's playing their best. I'm trying really hard to get on Steve's tail and he's dodging me and getting away and we can't, you know, we're just going around the table. Uh, you got to find ways, I think, for somebody who's new to the game to mix it up early on. So what you're saying is... Make some of those fun, more dynamic you've things You've got to be a blue falcon, not a tryhard. That's what you're going to say, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think there's, there's an element to... And it goes back to the socialization. Getting kids to understand the right level of smack talk, the right level of screwing your buddies over because that was one of the funniest thing in the dungeon crawl game that I watched people do and people that were, were super Euro game competitive. It just didn't click in their brain that how they could, you know, block the players behind them and things they could do that would, that would set it up that they would only get, they would get further advanced. Um, but it was funny to sit at the table I was at and kind of me and the older guy across the table, both realized it at the same time. And, and we had that, that moment of grognard rule enforcing we're like oh no 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 none of you are drawing cards out of turn because i want to be able to totally screw you over and take that card that you wanted um so th- there's i think there's some fun to that because it's 
it's kind of like the white elephant gift. I, I have to share this because this is one of those funny moments about my realization about my super kind, super nice, super wonderful people family, that they're all good people and I'm a horrible, evil person who's going to go to hell and burn forever. Um, but I realized that they couldn't grasp the concept of the white elephant gift where you can steal gifts from other people and you have like a limit, obviously. I'm sure you guys have all done the white elephant gift where you, like a limit on a gift can only be stolen from two other people, but it comes up through this whole gift giving rotation. That is a hilarious interaction in who your friends are um, inside a family, but is also kind of just a great way to do something different than everyone opens their gift and yay, I got another pair of socks from grandma. Awesome. <laughs> So those those kind of social skills I think are good. Okay, other other things to think about gaming with kids, bringing new young players in, uh, especially for dusty old historical types that uh, don't necessarily uh, think think for kids, think for how to bring kids in the game. There's there's a lot of opportunity for some historic like you know, you look at a typical table for like bolt action or you know, ACW, really, there's a lot of the games we saw in the historical room at Adepticon, they look really good. And I think that's like an important oh, component because yeah. I think maybe maybe a new player would really be drawn to something if it looks super cool because it's, you know, really immersive. The table itself kind of tells a story right away. You're in the setting, you know what's kind of going on. Like we were looking at tables that were clearly like Stalingrad or something like some bombed out factory and it's snow everywhere. It's like, holy cow, that's cool. And then there's another table where it looks like it could be, you know, some French, I don't know, farmland or something. And, you know, I don't know, whatever. This is a different variety of tables. And I think that alone is probably attractive yeah. to a new player do you think steve oh definitely and i think just more than anything is fun has to presuppose like anything else right so like just having fun needs to be more important than the rules or the game or the outcome or any of that stuff i mean even if you think it's the coolest content out there right like i love airplanes i love world war ii fighters if blood Red and Sky you love my little pony <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't play Blood Red Skies if it wasn't fun just because I love airplanes, right? right so I, I feel right. like you really need to remember that. The fun has to be, the fun factor has to be the 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 most important thing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. The The other thing that I learned that I'm, I'm still not sure where I sit with, with understanding it or incorporating it into demo games is that trying to understand the difference between someone who has a great imagination and someone who is creative. And so a lot of times kids have a great imagination. It just never runs in the way you're thinking because <laughs> they don't know the story. They don't know the history. They don't know those kind of things. So when they look at the table, they don't view it as, oh, this is the Battle of Midway. Okay, here's my Wildcats defending against zeros, whatever. Uh, they tend to have this really creative view of it. Oh, look, my airplanes are trying to get to those two islands. And when I get to those islands, I'm going to super power up and I'm going to turn around and shoot you. And so they have this entire alternate fluff and lore that they can create in their mind in about five seconds. Uh, but it has zero to do with anything historical. That is what is in your mind about where the game should go. Uh, so that, that was one of those points where I'm like, maybe Blood Red Skies needs an alternate set of rules that plays more like all those 1980s aerial dogfighting games. <laughs> I can't remember any of the name of those. I just remember you'd play them and shoot up lots of Japanese super boss bombers and, and things like that. 
but yeah, so there's there's a, a a level of creativity I think you have to play to, a level of imagination, and and really get kids involved and interested. Do you think history ever makes makes a part of that? Do you think dragging kids in with a historical connection ever works, or do you think that's something that those educators that are corrupting America and brainwashing our children? Uh, no, the, but that people people who love history tend to kind of apply that theory to kids. Oh man, I don't know. I think that uh, I think the worst thing you could do is make it seem like school on a yes. weekend. Yes, okay. Right? I, I mean, I was about to say because that. that's how I feel about it. I don't I know if anyone else feels that way. So I'm like, they they don't want a history lesson. They don't. I mean, there don't. are kids that are just going to be interested in that, right? They watch Band of Brothers and they thought it was cool, or they watch Rambo and they thought it was neat, and they are kind of into that. And you're always going to get those kids that are. I mean, I've had kids already that can name every single airplane ever. You know, you get kids like that. But oh, yeah. by and large, as a rule, don't don't make it like school on a weekend. That's a bad move. <laughs> exactly. You know, we see that a lot just in our own interactions on Ready Room oh, yeah. and stuff. You know, there's always, there's often, uh, you know, s- sideways glances about, oh, no, I, that combination, that wouldn't be appropriate because that's not historically accurate or whatever you know whatever the damn game i'm not reliving history (laughs) yeah i think you gotta you gotta suspend some of that stuff if you're gonna attract a new player probably and just let folks you know kind of find their own way i mean you know whatever american aircraft doing uh, doing tight turn (laughs) exactly ram attack or whatever right yeah i think i spent more time explaining why 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 a robust uh uh f4f was not the airplane to ram attack with even though in the rules it makes perfectly good sense uh that's all right all right so any any last uh things to leave the audience with for do not do (laughs) things not to do other than as brett has said don't don't be a brett don't don't be a terrible father um but any last uh red lines that that will just drive kids uh, screaming and running in the opposite direction uh, as a grognard. I know Steve's thinking of a smart ass answer here. <laughs> no, I mean I mean uh, I think I think you have to accept that probably a large percent of the kid uh, percentage of kids no matter what you do don't want to play a game with you, right? Exactly. So you just have to be I was, ready yeah, for that. Just I was still laughing about that, about, right? about your comments <laughs> when we were talking about this episode and you're like, "Yeah, how about the kids that don't want to do anything with their parents and hate us all?" Yeah, you know. Th- there's an element of that that you're already, you know, dragging them to the table sometimes, uh kicking and screaming and, and at least make it enjoyable for the short time you <laughs> got them. There. I think like you said at the beginning too, the flip side of that is None of us are getting any younger and all of our friends are going to die. Yeah, so if you exactly. want anybody left to play with, you need to at least try to get your kids into these exactly. games. So maybe when they come visit you at the home, there's like, you know, somebody left to Sean, play with. can you pass know. me the applesauce and the blue Falcon hobbies paints? I need to paint these zeros. <laughs> Brett, any, uh, any red lines, any, any epic fails? No, I think I've learned more than I have to share. I, you know, I think, that's because I'm scarred. I'm scarred after this weekend. It'll take me months yeah, to recover. I, I just, what what Steve said has made me do a lot of reflecting now. I'm thinking, yeah, that's what it is. It's not my my failure to set the thing up right. It's just that my son doesn't want to hang out with me. That's really what it is. He doesn't want to, he 
He's got better things to do. I don't do that out with the girls about this loser. And you have a pool, so you're yeah, exactly. totally fucked. I mean, you are, you are done at that point. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I'm I mean, I live in Pennsylvania, so there's a solid five months we're all stuck inside together, and I have to beg my kids to play games with me. You're in Florida. You have like a one percent chance. You're you're really in a tough spot. Oh uh, well, awesome. Well, let's cover a couple things uh, as we wrap up. Let's talk a little bit about calendar and schedule because we didn't talk about introing. We jumped right on in. Uh, we've, we've talked previously about Twisted Lords. We're totally dropping the ball there and leaving Casey holding the bag. So 22 to 24 July, there will be some Blood Red Skies games there. Casey will do his best not to lose his mind, but to, uh, host some fun games and do some, some BRS stuff there. John, of course, will have the Bismarck. He will have the Hornet. So plenty of ships to sink, uh, big Red Skies airplanes to play with. And once again, if all of you people that like Big Red Skies, you bunch of weirdos, you know who I'm talking about, uh, all want to play Korea again. That was an awesome game. I'm sure, guys, we'll set that up and we'll do Big Red Skies for Korea. Uh, same weekend, Historicon, Steve. Hopefully, we'll break away, maybe drag the kids to uh, to go there and hang out, uh, look at a couple games. But then from there, NashCon in mid-August, 16 to 18 August. Yes, I will be there. No, no one else will. So I know none of you like me. You all like Brett, Steve, and Casey much better. So don't go to NashCon. Uh, that way I don't have to beat you all at Aerodrome as I rack up more kills and get my ace kills. <laughs> and get ahead of Steve. Steve, how many kills do you have right now? I think we're even in Aerodrome 2.0, but ooh, okay. if you add you total kills yeah. to Korea, I'm, I'm ahead by quite a uh, bit. I may have, to, may have to get ahead and actually play a couple 3-0 games. So I'll be at NashCon. Blood Red Skies Tournament will be there. Hopefully we'll do some Aeronautica. We'll see. Uh, all depends on tables, and we'll know more as we get closer to the end of the summer. Crucible, this is the big one. So 30 September to October it's looking like a huge push for lead pursuit for us to do a gathering of eagles type event we know that the warlord team has definitely got us some tables to play blood red skies on to do tournaments on to keep playing throughout the weekend so come down to orlando go see the mouse or send your wife and kids to go see the mouse uh, while you come play games with us and have a good time uh, and then we will go on from there and figure out the rest of the schedule. I know there's Siege of Vicksburg somewhere there in October, uh, and we'll go through the rest of the things with Millennium Con uh, in November, and then it'll be December, and it'll be a holidays, and I'll be spending money buying games for other people that don't like me. But that's the schedule in a nutshell. Along with that, please go out there. Please like and comment on our podcast. A lot of new people out there that are starting to listen to Lead Pursuit. Apparently, you all must have nothing to do uh, to include even one of my best friends from high school. Her husband started following us on Facebook, and God forbid if he actually starts listening to the podcast, we're all screwed. So the world has become way too small when I run into friends from high school at these gaming conventions. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to us. We will talk to you all next week with another episode of the Lead Pursuit Podcast. So if you're mad at us, Steve must be mad at us. Steve left. <laughs> Steve rage quit because we talked about Cold War ACM. Dude, that's the second week in a row that, like, the second you started talking, it booted me out. Like, what like, the hell? Like, Steve just rage quits every time I start talking. Oh. All right. Your intro suck. <laughs> this is the worst podcast ever. <laughs>
Thank you all very much. We will talk to you again next week with another episode of the Lead Pursuit Podcast.